The Jodcast, Let the Meat Cake, with Megan Argo, David Alt, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, Mark Perver, and Roy Schmitz. The Jodcast, September 2009 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. It's the middle of September and joining me are Stuart, Jen, Roy and Megan. Hi guys. Hello Dave. Hi Dave. Hi everyone. Hello. So in the show this issue, we'll get your questions answered by our very own Roy Schmitz. Uh, the questions being asked by Mark Perver. We'll talk about Hubble's new images. We'll hear about the search for the Mars Polar Lander the loss of communication with Chandrayaan-1, and the recent fires near Mount Wilson. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo about schoolchildren using the Parkes Telescope in Australia. I'm here at the Australia Telescope National Facility with Rob Hollow, who is the Education Outreach Officer. That's right. Okay, so what exactly is your job? Uh, well, my job um, is pretty diverse, so... First, I guess the Australia Telescope National Facility is part of CSIRO, which is the Australia's largest um, government research organisation. So we do a huge range of um, different science, from land and water, uh, environmental sustainability, agricultural science. And our division, the Australia Telescope National Facility, is really the uh, uh, component that's uh, responsible for providing radio astronomy facilities to astronomers from across Australia and indeed around the world. Now my job is uh, Education Outreach Officer, so I'm basically taking the science that the, our astronomers and technicians and engineers do and getting the word out there, um, I guess primarily at the school level to school teachers, students, but also to the public uh, and to anybody who's interested. So it's a pretty diverse job. I do a lot of teacher workshops around Australia, so we run some, including a great one we run at Parks every year, uh, home of the famous DISH telescope, and uh, but I run uh, in uh, workshops in most capital cities across Australia and other locations, uh, write some web materials, I manage our uh, undergraduate summer vacation program where we have uh, third and fourth year uni students come in and do a 10-week project over their summer break. And the other thing that I run is a, a great little project uh, that we're really proud of called Pulse at Parks. Parks is a radio telescope in New South Wales, operated by ATNF. That's right. So Parks Telescope, um, it's a 64-metre single-dish radio telescope, uh, opened in 1961, which might make it seem rather old, but in fact it's had numerous and regular upgrades, so it's really still a state-of-the-art telescope doing some fantastic science. So it's the largest single-dish telescope devoted to radio astronomy in the Southern Hemisphere. And um, we can also link it together with our other current radio telescopes, the Australia Telescope Compact Array, which is 622-metre antennas uh, up at Narrabri, northern New South Wales, and another 22-metre antenna called MOPRA. It's basically halfway between uh, Parks and Narrabri. And so when we link them together, they form the Australia Telescope. Um, with uh, radio interferometry, that simulates a telescope basically 300 kilometres across. And then several times a year we also link them with antennas down in Hobart in Tasmania and in Sejuna and um, South Australia to form what we call the Long Baseline Array. Uh, so we can do for uh, very long baseline interferometry observations. And the other thing we're doing at uh, 
ATNF at the moment that's keeping us very busy is planning and starting to build an amazing new radio telescope called the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder. That's going to be a revolutionary new fast, deep survey radio telescope that we're building in the outback of Western Australia. So what exactly is the Pulse at Parks project? Well, Pulse at Parks project is really our first project where we're aiming to take radio astronomy out to high school students. Um, there's lots of different schemes around the world where students can access um, optical telescopes, including the fantastic Forks telescope scheme run th- from England, uh, and other smaller uh, robotic or remote uh, or internet-controlled telescopes. So visually, there's uh, students have an increasing uh, range of uh, facilities they can access. I guess radio astronomy is conceptually that bit harder to take to students. It's, it's you know you don't get a pretty picture straight away. So there's a lot more conceptual um, blocks uh, if you wish to engage students. One of the strengths of the Parkes Telescope is that it's fantastic for doing pulsar. Uh, observations and pulsar science and we've got quite a, st- a very strong team of pulsar astronomers here so uh, we've been talking over several years about you know how could we um, use this to excite students in science and we came up with a scheme of pulsar parks so basically we use the parks radio telescope and we provide it to students and they take direct control of the telescope remotely over the internet and they get a two-hour observation session uh, once per month. So a different school each month can, can basically control the biggest dedicated radio telescope in the Southern Hemisphere for two hours to observe these pulsars. So can you give us a brief description of what a pulsar actually is? So pulsars are the um, fast-spinning remnant of a, of a dead star. So they're effectively a neutron star, something about one and a half times the mass of the Sun, packed down into a really dense sphere, about 10 to 20 kilometres across. So they're the densest form of matter that we could get short of a black hole. And these things spin as they collapse, the angular momentum's conserved, so they uh, spin up. So a typical pulsar might spin a few to up to a few hundred times per second. And they've got intense magnetic fields associated with them and these two big uh, poles or beams of, of radiation. And as the... Uh, pulsar spins around, if that beam that's following it around happens to cut across us here on Earth, we can pick that up as a radio signal with our telescope. And that's basically what we're getting the students to look at. That's fantastic. So school students actually get to control and use the Parkes Telescope themselves? That's right. Yeah, they control it. So with the uh, Pulse at Parkes scheme, what we've done, there's about, about 2,000 pulsars known, about two-thirds of which were actually discovered using the Parkes Telescope. So what we're doing with pulsar parks, we've got a, a subset of that. We've got a catalogue of 42 pulsars, and the students observe some of those pulsars in any one session. So we've got a range of pulsars, so there's always going to be pulsars up visible in the sky, no matter what time of the year the students are observing. And they can observe typically for two to five minutes per pulsar. So the beauty of doing pulsars compared with a lot of other types of radio astronomy is that we can have students get pretty much immediate feedback as to what sort of signal we're getting and the quality of the data and then in a two to five minute observation they get usable data that they can then um, pull down and analyze using some online web tools that we've been developing. 
Okay, so they actually they get help from a real astronomer while they're doing this, presumably. That's right. A, a really big part of the scheme is not just to do some radio astronomy or study pulsars. I mean, exciting those those are, they're not, you know, big parts of any school curriculum. But uh, a, another really important part is to give students a chance to meet and interact with uh, professional scientists. And indeed, also, we have our PhD students come along. So we have a number of co-supervised PhD students from universities across Australia, here at ATNF. And so when the students come in, they meet real astronomers and real science students. And so as they, um, as they relax and get into the observing, they, they find themselves chatting a lot to the astronomers and they talk about career paths in science, what's good about it, what's bad about it, you know, what, you know, what interests them. And so then as they relax, they get other questions, they can just talk to the astronomers. The other thing we always do is we have an astronomer actually in the control room at Parks. Uh, and the students have a video link um, to the astronomer there. So they can also see what's going on in the control room. The astronomer there can give them a tour around the control room. And so it's worth pointing out that the astronomer there isn't controlling the telescope. It's the students who actually, actually have complete control of the telescope. The astronomer up there is just there to assist them and just be there in case of any problems or um, issues. And it's, it's real data that they're playing with. They actually get to do some science with the data they collect from the telescope. That's right, yeah. They, um, so sometimes, you know, we get some very interesting data that we've got. We've actually selected the pulsars um, because they show a range of characteristics. So we've got some millisecond pulsars there to some slower, uh, very bright um, pulsars. And indeed, the pulsars we've selected and the observations that the students make also feed into our other science programs with pulsars there. Every hour of telescope time is precious, so much as we'd like to, you know, we can't just say, oh, here, go and play with the telescope for a few hours. If we can um, use that data for multiple uses, then that's really handy. So the students get the real data, and they've got to assess the quality of it. They decide how long they want to keep observing the pulsar and when they think the data's good enough to go away and analyse. So it's quite a good learning experience for in quite a lot of different ways. It certainly is, and so we've been having some educational research and evaluation into the program to see what's working and what's not. Um, there, there haven't been too many other schemes internationally where high school students are doing radio astronomy. There's only been a few of them. So we've still got lots to learn about this as to, you know, what level can students actually understand, what are the, what are the things they find really difficult, what things um, can they comprehend. So we're, we're viewing this as really stage one of a long-term project to come up with more radio astronomy activities and investigations that school students can use because as we move towards the ASCAP and hopefully the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array era, we're going to have massive data sets. So data's not going to be an issue, <laughs> um, but we, we think we could use that data to help engage and stimulate students' interest in science and technology. Fantastic. How many schools have you had through the program so far? Uh, well, we've been running, um, coming up to two years now, we've had about 25 schools involved. Sometimes we have a few schools combined for a session. Uh, at present, most of our sessions are run here from our ATNF headquarters at Marsfield in Sydney. Um, we've done two, two sessions um, elsewhere, so we did a, a session in Perth last year. Last month we did one down the Victorian Space Science Education Centre down in Melbourne, and in fact next month we're back off over to Perth to do another session there. And we're in the early stages yet, but we hope to be able to run a session from the UK in December this year, which would be really exciting. So how much do the students actually need to know before they start a Pulse at Park yeah. session? Uh, one of the things is we obviously can't assume much knowledge now. In fact, 
New South Wales students, a lot of the students doing it, uh, doing their uh, HSC or equivalent to A-level physics here, and we've got quite a strong astronomy component in that, so they might know the basics of you know, stellar evolution and so on. But, you know, they're not going to know any radio astronomy. So the, the, typically what we do prior to an observing session, one of the Pulsar, uh, Pulsar Parks team members would go and visit the school, um, ideally a few weeks or more ahead of time, and we give a talk there about... Uh, background to radio astronomy, um, how a radio telescope works. Presumably they will never have used a radio telescope Exactly before. right. <laughs> and then um, what a pulsar is, why we're going to study some pulsars, sort of issues and problems they might encounter, and a basic introduction to the data analysis that they're going to do. So we sort of find that that introductory talk works their appetites, allays some of the fears, and then when they arrive here we give them a bit of a refresher on that. We also show them a short movie we made that takes them from the room they're sitting in here in Sydney out to the park's telescope, and then it's a, a walk through the telescope showing them the various features. So these are the things that we can't show during the live observing, but nonetheless it helps set the scene, gives them an idea of just how big the telescope is uh, and the like. And so from what we've been finding, the students seem to appreciate that. They, you know, We're getting some very good feedback from the students. They ask lots of really interesting questions, so they're, they're certainly uh, switched on to it. So the results that you've had so far, what's been the most exciting thing that's come out of the observations you've done to date? Um, well, what we've found, a couple of the pulsars we've been looking at, um, so there are a group of pulsars that are called nulling pulsars. So sometimes they're on, where we see the radio emission, and sometimes they're off. So we've had one pulsar we were looking at, and it was on last year, and then we were looking at it earlier this year, and it was on. Then the last session we were looking at, it was off. But then it turned on again. So we had two different groups looking at it during the actual observing run, and uh, we were able to pin down to within several minutes when when the actual pulsar turns on. So these are interesting. The more more examples of these that we can get, the better we can constrain the sort of models as to what's happening in the pulsar. And then, of course, we've got the data we can go through in, in more detail. Some of the other data we've got is helpful for calibrating for a really exciting long-term project we're running at Parks called the Parks Pulsar Timing Array. And this is a really um, ambitious and exciting project where we're timing 20 pulsars scattered across the sky. We look at as many of those as we can each month over many years, and we're hoping to make a direct detection of gravitational waves using pulsars as really the time source to, to probe these. It certainly is exciting stuff. So what's next for the Pulsar Parks project? Well, we're hoping to go live soon with the actual data analysis tools. So now that we've been running for close on two years, we're getting enough data sets accumulated that soon we're going to open it up and anybody will be able to actually go and analyse the data. And it doesn't mean, unfortunately, everybody's going to be able to go and control the Parkes telescope remotely, but there's going to be a lot of data there. And so the next stage is we want to start encouraging groups to collaborate and compare data of the same pulsar taken at different times from different observing runs and see if we can start to look at trends. So we're about to release our first online tool, and that allows people to calculate the distance to a pulsar. We're now working on the second online uh, tool set that will allow people to compare observations from different times and calculate what's called the spin-down rate of a pulsar and start to come up with an estimate of the age of the pulsar. So schools anywhere are going to be able to access these resources? That's right, yeah. So anybody will actually be able to access it when it goes live, hopefully next month. Um, so you just come on, have a look at the data, and we'll have all the tools there, and it'll take you through. Um, it's done using our server, so you don't need much computing power. You just need a Java and a web browser to, to interact with that.
Cool. We'll put a, a link to the website in the show notes. Yeah, that would be great. And our next session, we're actually running uh, from Perth, and uh, we're going to be Twittering. So anybody can actually follow live as the observing is going on and see what, what the comments are from the students that are observing and the astronomers. They'll all be putting up the comments. So you can follow a two-hour observing session live and get an idea of what it's like to be rapidly moving a telescope and sorting through, you know, target selections and looking at some interesting results. So it'd be nice if people can follow us on that one That's and all future sessions, in fact. That's great. There's a webcam as well at Parks, isn't there? So people can watch what the telescope's actually doing. That's right. So when the students are observing, not only do they have a webcam into the control room where they can talk to the astronomer there, we've got an external webcam that shows the telescope moving. So I guess for us always the highlight of the session is the first group of students that sits down behind the control desk that we've got here and they select the target pulsar they want to observe and they hit go on the telescope schedule and then on the big webcam projected up on the other display you see a thousand tons of moving metal moving around at their command and it's one of those wow moments when they realize that they did that yeah i can sympathize with that <laughs> so that's always great so yes we do have the webcam that people can look at now the public one normally only ref you've got to refresh every 30 seconds, but we take a, a, a much faster direct feed, and it's really impressive. So um, hopefully you'll uh, go and have a look at our uh, project, and soon you'll be able to get hands on our data and, and have a look and do some analysis on pulsars for yourself. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Rob. Thanks very much. Thanks. And as Megan said there, we have links to Pulse at Parks on the show notes, and you can follow them on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Pulse at Parks. Now let's have a roundup of what's been going on in space since we last talked. What do we got, guys? So on the 9th of September, NASA released the latest images from the upgraded Hubble Space Telescope, and these show what the new cameras can do and the spectrograph that they put on the telescope. So this is things like the Wide Field Planetary Camera 3? Yeah. Yeah, the new one. So there are quite a few images up on the website. You've got a wide variety of things, and there's also comparisons between the old images and the new ones. And we'll put all links to all of those on the show notes. But there's a beautiful picture from the Butterfly Nebula. One of the upgrades is that they've added this spectrograph, which means that they can now see much more difference in frequency. So have a much larger range in frequency, have a much higher frequency resolution. So that should really make the pictures much more beautiful to look at. Yeah, so they've they've replaced the Wide Field Planetary Camera 2 with the Wide Field Planetary Camera 3, which I think has got um, better wavelength coverage than the previous one, so it can see more of the spectrum than the previous one could. And they've also got the Cosmic Origin Spectrograph, which is a brand new spectrograph, which you can actually see a lot in the ultraviolet, which is not something the Hubble's been very good at before. So there's a whole new part of the spectrum there that they can do. It won't make pictures, but it will make very, very nice spectra. One of these first release images is of a distance quasar which is at redshift 0.574 and they've got the image and the spectrum of that so I think they're planning on probing further and further back so higher redshifts. But they've got some nice images of some more local stuff as well there's a beautiful picture of the Carina Nebula on there so they've got pictures in there's a visible light picture and there's a I think it's infrared and um, so you can see the differences between what you can see in the different parts of the spectrum so one is full of gas and there's dust everywhere and the other one you can actually see into the nebula and see what's going on inside it so it's really quite impressive to look at the difference between the two and they have some plans to make the deepest ever portrait of the universe in a near infrared light and talking of pretty images involving Hubble images, there was a really nice APOD, um, astronomy picture of the day recently that I saw, which was before, I think, the the new results from Hubble. And it shows supernova remnant E0102-72, 
which actually looks really pretty. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So now, talking about uh, images that everyone can access, there is a new campaign to try and find the Mars Polar Lander. Now, in December 1999, it entered the Mars atmosphere, but then it disappeared, and ever since this has been a mystery. Attempts at finding uh, the lander using images from Mars Global Surveyor have so far been unsuccessful, but now we have the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and its powerful high-rise camera. So HiRISE has so far managed to image the Mars Exploration Rovers and also the Phoenix Lander, but it's not yet managed to locate a spacecraft where you haven't known where it is. So on the HiRISE website, there are images of the predicted landing area that you can go and download and search for it. And if you find it, you, there's, I think there's a form that you can fill out to email them, or you can post a comment on their blog. And we'll put links to all of that on the show notes, and hopefully someone will find it. And talking of looking at images of the surface of other bodies in the solar system, the Galaxy Zoo, which people hopefully remember, we've talked about several times on on the Jodcast, Galaxy Zoo are launching Moon Zoo, which is going to use images from the NASA Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and they'll be taking, they already are taking images of the surface of, of the Moon, and you'll be able to, in a Galaxy Zoo way, go and help search for craters and for boulders on the Moon. So the craters is to, to look at the ages of different parts of the surface of the moon by how many craters there are and the size of the craters. And boulders is to help look for safe landing sites for future missions to the moon. So go and find that on the web. I'm not quite sure if they've launched it yet. I was hearing about it at a conference in Greenwich um, a week or so ago. But that's pretty exciting. The The Galaxy Zoo is expanding and talking about the moon, I remember when I was in India uh, back last October, there was a huge amount of celebration when India launched its first moon mission, uh, Chandrayaan-1. Uh, unfortunately, radio contact with the spacecraft was lost uh, abruptly on the 29th of August, according to India's Space Research Organization. So do we know, do they know what the reason was? I think it's that the spacecraft overheated. I think the latest news is that they underestimated how much heat would be emitted by the moon's surface. But I think that's unconfirmed. So Chandrayaan-1 managed to have 312 days in orbit while it was still communicating with the Earth. That had more than 3,400 orbits. And during that time, it's been mapping the surface of the moon with a terrain mapping camera. And it's also been taking spectra with a hyperspectral imager and the moon mineralogy mapper. So it has been doing some science and... Hopefully we'll hear about that at some point when they publish it. Yeah, one of the things that they were hoping to do with this spacecraft was to link it up with NASA's LRO, but unfortunately they didn't realise that Chandrayo was actually facing the other way when they were taking the data. So I think it's quite an impressive mission. Um, apparently only cost £45 million pounds to get this orbital around the moon. Which is incredibly cheap by space standards. And it's got a lot of stuff on it as well. I know some people say about developing nations um, using money on, on space. But £45 million is really nothing compared to how much NASA spend on sending a mission to Mars or to the Moon. So they should let India do everything. Yeah, I think they've got another one planned, the second one planned, for a few years' time. So they're not giving up just yet. So from one instrument getting slightly overheated to another, and we've got news about the Mount Wilson Observatory that was recently threatened by a station fire. Yeah, these were the quite dramatic fires in California. I don't know if people saw this on the news, but they were really, really large fires that were threatening lots of populated areas. They were threatening Mount Wilson, the observatory, and 
the the Mount Wilson website had a a live webcam showing you the view as the fire got closer and closer, which was quite dramatic. And certainly, I know quite a few astronomers in different countries around the world were all following that webcam and watching to see what was happening and hoping that it it wouldn't get as close as Mount Wilson. It was also threatening JPL, actually, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, I was at a conference last week and was talking to someone from JPL, and they were showing me pictures with a fire coming down the side of the mountain towards JPL. It was quite scary, really. They didn't think to evacuate. I think they had evacuated. You could see cars driving away. So what is the current status on that? So at the moment, they're no longer in any immediate threat, and there's still hot spots though, on the northern slopes, and so they're, they're still dealing with those but at the moment they seem to be okay so if if you're an american listener you can actually donate to the mount wilson appeal there as ever in astronomy usually funds are quite tight and with bits of the observatory being under threat and them needing to to fix those um they they've set up an appeal so if you're a u.s taxpayer you can you can donate tax-free i think so we'll put a link to that on the show notes anyway it's not the first time that an observatory has been threatened by bushfires um back in january 2003 there were quite serious bushfires around Mount Stromlo, which is outside of Canberra in Australia, um, where the Australian National University ran an observatory. And they were less lucky than Matt Wilson because what happened there was the fires actually destroyed quite a few of their buildings and they actually lost quite a few very old telescopes in those bushfires. Um, it has all been rebuilt now, but it took them quite a long time to get back up into operation, I think. So it does happen from time to time. Now, as you may have noticed, we have Roy Schmitz back on the show. He's uh, back from the Netherlands just for a short visit, and we thought that we'd get as much work out of him as at all possible. So we have been putting your questions to him in Ask an Astronomer. Here's Mark Perver. We have lots of Ask an Astronomer questions to catch up on this week, so we're going to launch straight into it. So the first question is from David Wilson. He says, I've seen definitions of dark matter described as non-baryonic. And of course, dark matter is stuff that we can't see. And his question regards black holes. He says, does the core of a black hole count as baryonic or non-baryonic? I know the event horizon can emit radiation, but not the matter inside it. Therefore, would not the matter inside black holes be regarded as dark matter? Well, as to does the core of a black hole count as baryonic or non-baryonic, I would say that the core of a black hole is actually non-baryonic. And that's because baryons is basically the stuff that's made up by quarks. And the way we think about black holes is that they are singularity. And I can't imagine that you would still have quarks in such a state. So, no, I don't think you can say that the core of a black hole consists of baryonic matter. As to the question whether that would be regarded as dark matter, dark matter is actually introduced to explain gravitational behavior in galaxies and then between galaxies, that is suggesting that there's more matter than we can actually see. And because we can't see it, we think it doesn't interact electrodynamically, and therefore it is non-baryonic. So there's two different things here. And I don't think that because both of it is non-baryonic, you can simply say that it's the same stuff. Uh, They're just two different things that are non-baryonic. But you can ask the question if black holes could actually explain this gravitational behavior. So could black holes still be dark matter? And that doesn't seem very likely, as you would need a huge amount of black holes to explain this behavior. And we can't explain so many black holes by any reasonable theory of stellar or galactic evolution. And if you did have so many black holes, then you would be able to see them 
as microlensing popping up all the time. Uh, so microlensing is basically the idea that the gravity of a heavy star or a black hole acts like a lens. So you can see that something that's behind it um, gets lensed by the gravitational effect. We can see these things sometimes, occurring sometimes, but if black holes would be the explanation of all the dark matter, there would be so many black holes, we would see microlensing all the time everywhere. And we don't do that, so therefore I would say no, black holes are not dark matter. The second question is from Great Old Mac, and it's about a phenomenon called auroral kilometric radiation, or AKR, the most powerful emission of terrestrial origin that is beamed into space. Now we know that Saturn and Jupiter also emit AKR, and this tells us about the magnetic environment of the planets. And it's also proposed that um, a search for planets around other stars could involve a search for this radiation. So the question is, do you know of any proposal or program with Merlin or VLBI to detect planets using this method, or have indeed any planets already been detected from AKR? And what would this radiation sound like? Yeah, that's a very good question. As far as I know, no planets have been detected by this method so far. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the frequencies of this emission typically lies well below 100 megahertz. And for most telescopes, um, this is not achievable. Merlin, I don't think Merlin can achieve uh, such low frequencies. So I don't think there's a proposal for Merlin uh, to look for that. Some new telescopes that are coming online, especially a telescope called LOFA, Low Frequency Array, which is currently being built in the Netherlands, should be very promising uh, for this. And I think there is a proposal for LOFA to actually look for exoplanets in this matter because it has a large collecting area, so it's a very sensitive telescope, and it also operates at very low frequencies, which should be suitable for finding these things. Um, another telescope that will come online a little bit further along the pipeline around 2020 is the SKA, the Square Kilometer Array, which also have a low frequency end. And since it will have even more collecting area, the SKA will probably be able to find those planets with this method as well. But as far as I know, um, at the moment, no planet can be found uh, with this method. What does it sound like? Well, actually, uh, last year, I think it's August Extra Edition of 2008, Tim O'Brien introduced us to several sounds from the cosmos. These aren't actual sounds, these are radio waves from the cosmos, which you can transfer into sound waves so we can hear what they sound like. And uh, he has actually has some examples in that episode of whistlers and chirps which are caused by this auroral kilometric radiation. So if you have a listen to August Extra Edition of 2008, then you can, um, you can find out what it sounds like. The third question is from Hugh Hassard-Jones. He saw the ISS flying over Liverpool at three minutes past midnight on the 13th of July, and he saw something preceding it in the sky. It wasn't the shuttle, and he asks, what was it? I actually don't know. <laughs> um, it would be interesting to, to, to have more information on, on what this looks like. Was it something that actually moved along with the ISS, or was it maybe a planet that was on the background? Um, if it was moving along, I did look up a picture of the Internet from that same evening, uh, where they actually showed the trail of the ISS. It was a, a many-second uh, exposure. And there was nothing else there. It was just the ISS. So whatever it was, several hours later in the evening, it wasn't there anymore. But I do know that they sometimes send supplies in huge containers uh, by using a rocket. And at some point, they'll have to eject it. And maybe you can see that. Uh, and maybe that was what he was seeing. would be nice to know more information on exactly what he saw. 
and what it looked like to be able to say uh, if that was it. The fourth question comes from Jeff Walker. It's about a supposed comet or planet approaching the Earth, which um, he has heard is due to interfere with our orbit in December 2012. And he asks, is this a hoax or is it real? (laughs) It's a hoax. Uh, The world is not going to end in 2012, and there's no known comet or planet going to interfere with Earth's orbit around that time or, as far as we know, any other time. Um, This is simply one of those many hoaxes about the end of the world... Uh, and in this case, it's one about 2012. And the main reason that the year 2012 is these days often quoted as the end of the world is that, well, first of all, it's because if you say it's before 2009, nobody's going to believe you. Uh, I know there were several predictions in 2008 that the world was going to end, but that didn't happen. Uh, so obviously you have to put it somewhere in the near future to make it interesting. But 2012, and especially December 2012, is special because it is the end of the Mayan calendar. And this is simply a consequence of the way they count. So on December 20, 2012, they reach a date that they indicate as 12.19.19.17.19. That is where their calendar stops. And the next day on their calendar, if they would add one day to that... Uh, that would be December 21st, 2012 for us, uh, their number would then be 13.0.0.0.0. Uh, they don't go that far, they simply stop the calendar at that nice round number. Uh, so there's no real physical meaning to that number itself, it's just a number that happens to fall in December 2012 for us. And actually, as far as we know, there's not a single clue that the Magians believed that this had anything to do with the end of the world. It's simply the way as far as their calendar goes. So it is simply something that people made up afterwards, just like hundreds of other end-of-the-world predictions that didn't come true either. So everybody can relax and stop worrying about their vacation plans in 2013. (laughs) And now, of course, the idea that a big object from space will kill us all is also nothing new. Uh, We've been seeing this kind of things a lot in Hollywood movies, for example. Uh, But the odds of that actually happening within, say, the next thousand of years, the odds of that are astronomically small. Uh, But, you know, large numbers, they don't mean anything to people. So so when you tell them that it is technically possible, even though the odds are very small, if you say it's technically possible, then you can get people to to panic already. Luckily, these days, we do have a pretty good idea of anything big out there that could possibly hit us someday. So, yes, we can see... Uh, these big objects that might be a threat. So, but whether we could actually do anything about it uh, will depend on the exact situation. When we find an object in collision course with the Earth, uh, maybe we can do something about it, maybe we're hopelessly lost. That's very hard to say. But when you put all the odds together, the chances that the world will actually come to an end in 2012 due to a big object from space, uh, that's just completely negligible. The next question comes from Gary Brannigan who was listening to the March 2009 Extra Jodcast and is fascinated by LISA, the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, which is intended to detect gravitational waves. And he asks if the sun's gravitational field would also affect the detector. He says, I know that the Earth's gravitational field varies due to the density of the underlying rocks, and I thought that the sun might have the same effects going on. Yeah, I do think that the sun's gravitational field will change uh, in time due to just the convex nature of of the inside of the sun. 
Well, the question is, whether will this have a significant effect on Lisa? Well, of course, obviously, Lisa is an extremely sensitive instrument, so maybe it does have an effect. I haven't done the calculations on that, so I don't know. So the way Lisa works is by looking at the tiniest changes in the path length of three laser beams. So Lisa has three components, there are three laser beams, and the slightest change in path can be seen by Lisa because they look at the interference at the interaction point of two laser beams. Uh, And when a gravitational wave passes, then what it will do is, um, depending on the direction that the gravitational wave travels, one of the beams will have a slightly smaller or larger travel length, so it'll change the phase at the interaction point. So nothing else changes, just the path length of these laser beams. Now, if you would have a change in gravitational field, if that would be significant, then that would result in an acceleration in the satellites themselves. And that is slightly different from actually just changing the path length. So I imagine that the people who engineered LISA uh, engineered it such that any kind of acceleration from solar wind or changing gravitational fields would be measured, and you can take this into account uh, so that you can, in the end, measure only the path length difference in the laser beams. So I would think that uh, since these are two different effects, that it would not affect the detection of a gravitational wave by LISA. The next question is from Andrew Tizak, and he says, My friend and I recently watched Apollo 13, which we both enjoyed. During the film, we began to wonder why it took a massive Saturn V rocket to get out from the Earth's gravitational pull, but a mere lunar lander to leave the Moon and go back to the Earth. As the Moon's gravity is about one-sixth of the Earth's, why didn't the astronauts need a spacecraft one-sixth the size and power of a Saturn V rocket? So so that assumes that the the amount of fuel basically scales linear with the amount of gravity of of the planet or Moon you're trying to leave, and that is simply not the case. First of all, you have to realise that If you have to take extra fuel, because the Earth has a larger gravitational pull, then all that extra fuel you're going to take with you, part of that has to escape from Earth, so you need extra energy for that, which means you have to add extra fuel, and also that fuel needs to be transported up to a certain height. So it's a very complex formula that would actually tell you how much fuel you need. And the more mass you're trying to launch, and the more gravity you're trying to overcome, the amount of fuel you need for that really goes up really quickly with those numbers. It also depends on the outflow of the gas that you're using to accelerate. Uh, So the whole thing is quite complex. You can make some easy assumptions and get some estimates on what kind of, what amount of fuel you need to take with you. Uh, I I did try to derive something, uh, a simple equation that does that. And when you put some reasonable numbers in there, I found that the Saturn V rocket um, needs to carry roughly about 200 times as much as the lunar lander. The last question is from Julie Walsh. She says, on Sunday the 9th, that's the 9th of August, at about 11pm, there was an orange fireball in the sky. This was so bright that she at first thought it was a plane that was on fire. She says, I recorded what looked like the moon moving across the sky. I'm intrigued as to what I might have seen and would like to find out what it was, possibly a Persid meteor. Yeah, it could have been a Persid meteor. Um, So we call that a fireball. 
so the, the, the peak of the Persian meteor shower was in August 12th, which is uh, three days after she saw this. And I do remember people reporting seeing a fireball around that time. So it could have been a fireball. And it would be nice to actually see the video recordings to be sure about that. An alternative could be that it was one of these Chinese lanterns, which we've had many reports of, people seeing these things and calling them UFOs and uh, all other things. So these days astronomers are quite keen. Whenever somebody comes, I saw something in the sky, they say, oh, it must have been a Chinese lantern. But it doesn't always have to be, of course, uh, the case. Um, since it was so very close to the Perseid meteor shower, it could very well have been a fireball, although they, although they are very rare. But I do know that at least one uh, did occur. Maybe that was it. Okay, thanks, Roy. Thanks, Mark and Roy. And so now we move on to our listener feedback. What have we got? Well, we've had a few emails in the last two weeks. Um, Rick Johnson, thank you very much to him. He spotted a problem with the Flash Player on our show notes pages for August and September. So thanks for that. We fixed it. Also thanks to Marie O'Sullivan, to Ran Pasternak, Philip Murphy, and Gaynor Thomas, who spotted a copy and paste mistake that we had in the RSS feed for the night sky. So thank you to all those people for sending their feedback. We have two postcards, one from Taipei from our very own Dave. Hey, thank you very much, Dave. No problem. We'll put it up on our board. And a postcard from Mike. I'm not sure which Mike it is. It's from Flagler Beach, Florida. He says, clear skies. So thank you very much, Mike. We'll add this one to our postcard wall. Thank you very much. So yeah, if you are on Facebook, go and join the Facebook group. We currently have 482 members, which I think is pretty good, but no one's saying anything. So please get on Facebook. And the forum's looking a bit dead in the last few weeks, so guys, please get back on there and give us some feedback on the shows or anything else you might want to talk about. And you can find the forum at forum.jodcast.net Or on Facebook, jodcast.net slash Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And the final little bit of news is that uh, our mixer for the intro-outros, Fiona Thrail, has had... A baby. Caris Elena Parry was born at 7.59pm on the 30th of July 2009, weighing in at 8 pounds and half an ounce. So congratulations, Fiona. And I can tell you that mother and daughter are doing very well. And father as well. Very good. That's it for this issue of the Jodcast. Our thanks go to Robert Hollow and to Sarah Bryan for editing us all together. So now, until next time... Jot on. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.